following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, typically at this point, I would be coming up to start my sermon. Uh, but I'm not preaching today. And uh, that's because we have a guest sermon from a person who's been part of Artisan for a long time. And uh, that is Penny Sterling. And uh, in a moment, Penny's going to come and we're going to welcome her and she's going to share uh, what I think is going to be a very challenging and inspiring sermon. Uh, Penny's uh, insight into a particular text of scripture is one that I never would have noticed. And that's one of the beautiful things about the Spirit of God gifting us uniquely and individually. And so... uh, I would like to say lots about how this came about, but I think I'd be spoiling some of the best parts. So I'm just going to stop there and say, uh, welcome, Penny. Thank you. And would you all welcome Penny as she comes? Can you get some of that stuff off of there, Penny? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's a mistake for me to be up here. Yeah, it is. Well, actually, it was a mistake that brought me up here. Um, This past summer when Scott went on vacation, Pastor Jesse posted in the Artisan Facebook group asking if people would be willing to help with worship. And I never say no to stage time. So (laughs) I said, sure. Uh, And she sent me a note saying, well, what do you want to do? Do you you want to uh, read scripture? Do you want to lead confession? Or do you want to do a sermon? And that last one kind of got me. Uh, And I wrote back, do you really want me to to do a sermon? Uh, Because I hadn't thought about that, but the way I'm reacting to that uh, tells me it's something I should look into. And she wrote back, I'm very sorry for misleading you. No, I I don't need you to lead the sermon. I was wondering if you'd be interested in introducing the person we've already asked to do the sermon. And I look back, and that is exactly what she wrote. But... When I saw that word sermon, I had this immediate reaction. And then she said, but you should talk to Scott about this because you'd be great. It may be a mistake for me to be up here. Let me talk for a minute about the feeling that I had when I saw the word sermon. It's a very ancient feeling. I've had it a lot in my life. Um, It starts in my stomach. Uh, and the, the, what's known as the pit of my stomach, actually my stomach becomes a pit. It disappears. And then my heart skips a beat. And then it starts racing faster. And I'm very aware of my skin and the hairs on my skin. And I have this electric tang in my mouth. Has anyone felt anything like that before in your lives? Do you, do you have a word that you use to describe it? I used Fear. That was the word that I would talk about when I would talk about it. Whenever I felt that, I would move away from it. But about 11 years ago, um, something happened, and uh, I examined that feeling when it comes up, and sometimes I move towards it. In 2008, I was in New Hampshire visiting my friend Gordon. Gordon and I were best friends in high school and college, but about 15 or 17 years before this, we had just drifted apart. Uh, it wasn't a fine thing. We just had different lives. Different. So um, I got in touch with him, and we were reconnecting, and I asked him, would it be okay if I came up and visited him on his horse farm in New Hampshire with my kids during the summer? He said, yeah, that'd be great. 
And so we were there, and we were hanging out together, and um, his wife and my kids were out taking care of the horses, and we were in his kitchen uh, catching up and finding out what happened to us in the previous nearly two decades. Gordon had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, but a fairly mild version of it. And he didn't like the way the medication was making him feel, so he decided that he was going to try and medicate himself by changing to a vegetarian lifestyle and exercising. And he was able to control his disease that way much more effectively. So that's what he did. And the exercise that he did mostly was bicycling. And he really liked it, and he got very good at it. Good enough that he was starting to compete uh, right competitively around the, uh, the eastern seaboard and more. And one of the uh, events he did more than once was the Mount Washington Auto Road Bicycle Hill Climb. Anybody here know Mount Washington? Yeah, it's the highest point in the Northeast. It is, um, it's got a road that goes up it that is 7.6 miles long and has an average incline of 12.5 degrees. Now, if you draw a 12.5 degree angle on a piece of paper, it doesn't look like much, but when you're going up it, you know that you're going up an incline. Uh, public roads, there are very few public roads in America that have an incline of higher than 8 degrees. Uh, the road up Cobbs Hill is about 8 degrees. Um, if you're in Ellison Park and you are going towards uh, um, Atlantic Avenue, that's about 8.5. If you're going up Blossom towards the city, that's 9 degrees. And this was 12.5 degrees with extended periods of 15 degrees, a couple of 18 degrees, and then the last 50 yards are 22.5 degrees, which is like climbing up a wall. And Gordon did this twice, and with MS, did this twice, and got to the last 50 yards and was gassed and couldn't make it. Then he uh, had started dating this woman, Cheryl, and he told Cheryl that he was going to try it a third time. And Cheryl said, well, if you do, I'll be at the top of the mountain waiting for you, which is a wonderfully romantic thing to say, but it's also very practical because you're only allowed to go up Mount Washington twice a year, and you're never allowed to ride down it on a bicycle because it is too long and steep and winding. Your brakes would fail well before you got to the bottom. So you needed somebody with a car to take you and your bicycle up the mountain, down the mountain. And Gordon did the ride the third time, got to the last 50 yards and was gassed again, but looked up and saw Cheryl at the top waiting for him and found every last bit of his strength and made it to the top of the mountain. And climbing off his bicycle, he collapsed into her arms and lying there powerless, he looked up at her and said, will you marry me? And she said, yes. And I said, it's a good thing you didn't go off your bike the other way, you'd be married to some random volunteer dude right now. <laughs> That's what I said, but what I was feeling was that feeling, because as I was listening to Gordon tell the story, I heard a voice. I don't hear voices. Well, I do. I hear lots of voices in my head, but I know they're mine. They're the voices of negativity telling me that I'm not enough, that I'm a failure, that nobody likes me, I'm an imposter. What, oh, a friend of mine has them, he calls them his itty-bitty spitty committee. <laughs> Only he doesn't say spitty. I'm used to those voices. I've had those voices my entire life. This was not my voice. This is a voice I'd never heard before. It was quiet. It was still. It was insistent. And it said three words to me. You're doing that. And I had that feeling. I freaked out. I literally freaked out. It was ridiculous for me to think that I could do that. I was 48 years old at the time. I was out of shape and I wasn't a bicyclist. Technically, I was a bicyclist uh, in February. I woke up one morning and said I should look into getting a bicycle because I was out of shape and I wanted to get in better shape. Uh, my legs really wouldn't let me run. I couldn't afford a gym membership, but I thought if I could go on to Craigslist and find a bike for $150, 
uh, I could use that to start getting active. And I looked on there, and there was one bike that fit my description that was posted that morning. For $125, I could get a Schwinn Frontier bicycle, uh, which is a hybrid bike. It was perfect for what I wanted, and I emailed the guy. And he emailed me, back, emailed me back, and I stopped off at his apartment. And when I got home that night, I had a bicycle. But it was nothing of a bike. It was a, a cheap bike that I could use. I rode around here and there, but I could not use it to go up a mountain. And so I ignored the voice for about a month. And then in September, uh, a friend of mine, more than a friend, I wanted her to be more than I had a crush on her. Uh, and she was going to run her first marathon, the Rochester Marathon. And inspired by the Gordon and uh, Cheryl story, I said, I'll be at the starting line for you to cheer you on. <laughs> and I took my bike because everyone who's been around knows that Rochester on Mar- driving in Rochester on Marathon Day is problematic. And I wanted to be there on time, so I took my bike to the starting line. And everyone started, and I clapped and cheered. And my friend rode by, and I ran by, and I clapped and cheered for her. And then she was gone, and it was quarter to seven on a Sunday morning. And I was alone with a bicycle in the city of Rochester. So rather than just go home, I just kind of tooled around with that voice. You're doing that in my head. And that's how I ended up at the corner of uh, Monroe Avenue and Highland, uh, which was blocked off by the police because runners were starting to go up Highland and down Monroe. And I thought, I will wait here for my friend and cheer her on so she knows that I'm serious about her and I care for her and I'm not at all a stalker. And so I waited, and I waited for about 45 minutes, and she never ran back, ran by because this was the path for the half marathon, and she was miles away running the full marathon. But there I was at the base of Cobbs Hill, one of the highest points in Rochester, with that voice still in my head. And finally I was sick of this, and I started riding back home past up Monroe Avenue, uh, past the green area there with the path that the runners have run, worn into it who are looking for a good workout going up and down that incline. And I said mostly to shut the voice up, well, if I can't make it to the top of Cobbs Hill, I cannot go up Mount Washington. So I turned right and I rode up to the top of the mountain. And I made it. I was tired, but I made it. And I got up there and I said, okay, but I can't make it up twice. And I went back down, I turned and rode up, and I made it up a second time. And then, then I said, okay, well, I can't do it three times. And I did it three times. I was exhausted. My legs were jello. I, my lungs were on fire, but I did it. And I said, I'm going to ride a bike up Mount Washington. And then I came back down and I started talking about it, which is something I never did. I would always make these grandiose plans, and I would never tell anybody because I wanted to surprise them with the Cinderella story sort of thing. This time I didn't do that. This time I started talking about it, and I started talking to people about it. And I found a bicycle, the least expensive bicycle I could find that could get me up Mount Washington. It was a surly, long-haul trucker. I still have it. It's low gear as a Frisbee. Cost me a thousand dollars, but I did it, and I started riding it, and I rode it all of 2009. And those rides that I considered to be hard workouts were my warm-ups. I would start out my rides by riding up and down Cobb's Hill three times, and I would ride longer and longer and harder distances. I started riding my age in miles on my birthday, which I have come to regret because I'm still doing it. <laughs> the rides aren't getting any longer, and I'm not getting any younger. I figure sometime in my 70s, I'm going to switch to kilometers. <laughs> and when I get to 100, I'll switch to yards. <laughs> 99 is going to suck. But I didn't feel ready in 2009. And then 2010 came and I didn't feel ready. And then in February of 2011, I woke up one morning and I said, if I don't register for this ride this year, I probably will never do it. 
And I got online to look to see when registration was. I thought it was like March or April, so I wouldn't miss it because this is a very popular ride. There are only 600 positions available, and they all get filled within 24 hours. So I didn't want to miss it. So I got onto the site, and I found out that registration had opened at midnight. And there were already several hundred people who had registered for it. So I had no choice. I had no time to consider. It was go or no go, and I registered. And then I trained in earnest, and I spent a lot of time on the west side of Canandaigua Lake, where there's a lot of really, really steep hills. If you ever want to do a bike hill climb, talk to me, because I know a lot of really steep routes to go there. And I trained. I was down there, like, I think 20 or 30 days in July and June and part of August. And then in August, I went back up to New Hampshire and stayed with my friend Gordon. And on the 20th, we got into his uh, truck around 3.30 in the morning and drove to Mount Washington. And Gordon took my kids and left me at the bottom of Mount Washington all by my I went to the top all by myself and 599 other people. And I was nervous. That feeling was back. But it was nerves this time. I was scared and I was, I, I was so nervous. I was so nervous that the guy next to me threw up. That's how nervous I was. And I looked at it and I said, I feel better now. And then we started the race. And you know how they say sometimes the anticipation is worse than the thing you're afraid of? That is not the case. It was hard. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Do you want to know how to, I climb a mountain? I find a spot six feet in front of my front tire, and I concentrate on getting underneath my rear tire. And once that's done, I find a spot that's six feet in front of my front tire, and I get it behind my rear tire. And that's how I climbed Mount Washington, 7.6 miles. But the, in the last mile, there's this place called the cow pasture, which is where you're supposed to gather your strength. It's, uh, it goes there, and there's a turn, there's a hundred and... 100 yards of like 12 degrees, and there's that last 22 and a half degrees. And that cow pasture is 8 degrees. Remember 8 degrees being the high, the, that's, that's the catching your breath part of Mount Washington. And I was doing that. It was wide, and it was clear, and I'm moving straight ahead, and there's a boulder at the end that the road turns around, and a head pops out. It's my friend Gordon. And he sees me, he starts clapping and cheering. He'd been there for probably a half hour. And he saw me and he clapped and he cheered and he encouraged me. And I drew strength from that. And I come around this border and this hundred yards is filled with all the riders and all the people there and all the support people. And they're all cheering me on. And I start moving forward and I feel strong. And I say, I'm going to make it. I'm going to ride up Mount Washington. I'm going to do this. And then I make that left-hand turn for that last 50 yards. And I get about five yards up and I start to do this. And I'm not going to make it. And that's when Gordon ran up behind me and grabbed the back of my bike, my saddle, and started running me up the hill. And between his strength and my strength, mostly his strength, I make it to the top of Mount Washington. I did what I said I was going to do. Yeah. Amazing. And then two days later, as we're leaving, and Gordon and I are saying our goodbyes, I said, thank you. Thank you for the push. And he looked at me and said, what do you mean? I said, that last 50 yards when you came from the crowd and helped me get up the mountain. And Gordon looked at me funny and he said, I never touched you. Nobody touched you. Gordon is an atheist and an empiricist, and he does not go in for any sort of spiritual thing. If someone had done that, if he had seen somebody, if he had done that, he would have said that. Yet I saw someone who looked like Gordon, tall, thin, hairy, and bearded, detached from the crowd and push me up the mountain. And I realized that I had experienced a miracle. Because that is how it exper I, I experienced it. It was not my strength that got me up that last 50 yards. 
And then I looked back and I saw miracle after miracle that got me there. It was a miracle that I happened to look on the webpage for registration on the morning of the registration. It was a miracle to hear that voice saying, you're doing it while I was sitting in, that call, in, his, in his kitchen. It was a miracle that I woke up one random February morning in 2008 and said, bicycle. And those are just four of them. There were a whole bunch of them. Miracle after miracle after miracle. And when I realized that, I was so pissed off. Because I had been praying for a miracle, a very specific miracle, my whole life, and it wasn't to ride up some damn mountain. Our scripture today, our reading is from Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Don't look for it in your Bible. I like the New International Version, and it's very, very short, so just let me read it to you. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. They took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. I love this. I love the NIV version because it has the word rebuked in it. I love any word that is used in its modified form. No one ever gets buked but you get rebuked. You know, I'd be very gruntled if somebody got buked, to tell you the truth. And I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to guess that this particular verse and also the nearly identical verses in Matthew and Luke are not the subject of a lot of sermons. These are mostly Sunday school phrases in my history. And that's where I learned it. And I actually did an image search for... Uh, Mark 10, 13 through 16, and this image came up, you know, the happy, smiling Jesus with the happy, smiling children, which is how I learned it when I was in Sunday school, which I went to a lot. I, I was a Methodist growing up. Any, any former Methodists in the, are there yet? What, what, okay, what were you, uh, United, Free? United? Both United? No, no Freeze? Free once, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we were neither of those. We were relatively cheap Methodists. We didn't drink, but that was because, have you seen how much wine costs these days? Uh, and I went to church all the time. Can I see the, put the picture up there of me? Uh, this is me and my brother. Ah, uh, yeah, I'm the cute one. Which is the one wearing red. Yes, there you, you chose wisely. There we are after a uh, Sunday school in May with our little Methodist ladders on our lapels. Do they still do, they still do the Methodist ladders? Are you familiar with these? Uh, they're, they're a way of keeping score. Uh, I have a, a picture of these that I put so you can see them side by side. Your first year of Sunday school, you get the badge with the cross and the SS on there, which stands for Sunday school, nothing else. <laughs> and then the second year, you get the wreath around it. This is second year, and every year that you complete Sunday school, uh, which for us was attendance and a test, and it counted, uh, you would get a rung on the ladder all the way down to 12 years. Now you can see here that I've got two on there and my brother has two and there's little uh, badges and little pins underneath those. Those are perfect attendance pins. Uh, at this point, my brother had never missed a, a day. I probably missed one and was very much a disappointment to my parents because of that. 
Uh, but that was what I was like growing up. We were Methodists and we lived in the church. We went to Sunday school. We were acolytes. We took confirmation. When we got older, we were in the youth choir. We played in the church band. We did readings. We did performative pieces. Uh, when I was old enough, I was in the adult choir. And that was, that was my life. And then I went to college and there was a fallow period. And then I got out of college and started dating a Catholic woman who was devout. And we went to Mass every Sunday. Um, at St. Monica's over the 19th Ward. And uh, we'd go there. In the weeks that we couldn't go, uh, my wife had one of her sisters bring home the Eucharist, uh, it, I know, which would surprise me. They had these little uh, things they called host carriers, little, little Jesus lunch buckets. I didn't know the Catholic Church had takeout, but they did. <laughs> and we did that, and we went there all the time until... Um, those more, we, get, we started missing more and more because Sunday morning was hangover mornings for my wife, and then they became wake and bake mornings for my wife, and our life fell apart. And I found a program called Al-Anon, and I started working the steps. And the first three steps abridged are, I can't, God can, let him. And I started working the program and working the steps with a sponsor. And we talked about spirituality, and we talked about God. And my sponsor said to me, you know, the same God that we talk about down here in the basement of the church is also upstairs in the big room, so maybe you should find one. And it was at that point that I got a mailer in my mailbox, uh, what is known in the artisan lore as the gay pastor mailer. And I looked at these two greasy guys on here. Uh, by the way, as a member of the LBGTQ community, I can safely say they are not gay pastors. But I looked at this and I showed it to my kids and said, hey, you want to try this? And they said, sure, why not? And so we started going because the, meetings, the church service was in the evening. And we didn't like mornings. And they drifted away when Bryn and Jaron Condon left. But I kept coming and I found a community here. And it was, I was in these rooms when I finally admitted to the world what I'd known my entire life, and that was that I was transgender. And I opened myself up to questions. People asked me, what about, what about transgender and things like that? And Bethany Beams, a, a former member of this congregation who's listening to this podcast right now. Hi, Bethany. I'm sure I just embarrassed her right then, so I'll do it again for the next one. Um, she asked me, how did uh, becoming, uh, admitting that I was transgender affect my faith? And being me, I gave her a very long-winded response, but I could have answered it in two words. What faith? I never had faith in my life. Can we go back to that picture of me, please? That was, this, I was trapped there. Uh, we would go to church, and then we would come home, and nothing came with us. Uh, going to church was no different than going to bowling on Saturdays. It was just a thing we did. I never had faith. I wanted faith, but I never had it. Um, this picture right here, uh, it wasn't dated, but by looking at the Jesus ladder, I was able to figure out what, how old I was and what year this was taken. And this was taken in 1967. And it was about 1967 that I finally realized that I was transgender, although that wasn't the wording that I used because... Transgender wasn't a word back then, and I didn't know that there was anybody else in the world like me that was like this until about 10 years later. Uh, and the reaction to Renee Richards, who was trying to compete in the women's professional tennis circuit as a transgender woman or a transsexual, as I call them back there, was horrible and vicious, including in my church. 
So I was safe, but I was trapped. And the only way I could see out was the miracle that I was praying for, and I prayed for it all the time. Please, God, make me a girl. And as I got older, please, God, make me a woman. And eventually, please, God, make me a man. Either one, I really didn't care after a while. Either make my outsides match my insides, my insides match my outsides, because I really didn't care at this point, because I was so miserable. I would come to church because I wanted there to be a God, but I didn't believe that there was a God because my prayers were never answered. And then, all of a sudden, to have this miracle happen to me, this miracle that I didn't want, that I couldn't use, that I didn't need when I had been begging for one for 50 years. And I was furious with God. I said, I hate you, God, and I said, worse. Is that okay to hear? Is that okay for me to come into church and say, I hate God? Because I didn't feel that. I never feel that, even in this church. I never feel the ability to... I feel a lot... It's a nerd church. We do a lot of esoteric stuff, but people feel feelings. I see a lot of joy. I see sorrow. I see anguish. I see how long, oh Lord, how long. But I don't really see anger. There's only one instance of anger that I remember in this church, and I brought it. It was the week after the Pulse Nice Club Massacre in Orlando when Scott was up here and in between doing the church stuff he would update us on the body count and then the next week he turned the microphones off and let us talk and I don't remember what I said but I know that I was angry and I expressed that anger here and then I sat in my seat and I cried and I didn't take communion because I never take communion I've never once taken communion in this church I stopped taking communion after I wouldn't get punished for it. At first, because I didn't feel like there was a God and I didn't feel like taking, if I take that, that would be a lie and I lived enough lies already. And then I didn't take it because I didn't feel like I was welcome in the church. But that day, when I was sitting there crying during communion, a woman that I'd never seen before came back and offered me communion. So I want to go back to that scripture. And I want you to look at the last two verses of it. About as a little child. Because I didn't plan on this scripture when I wrote this sermon. When I, uh, I, Scott told me I needed to have scripture. And I was looking through the Bible hub. I used the word rebuke. And I was looking for places in the New Testament where Jesus rebuked people. And Jesus, Jesus did a lot of rebuking, but he didn't do it here. And I read this passage because I was trying to figure out, and I saw that he didn't. And I read the passage, and I went, okay. I remember the passage from Sunday school, and I remember these kinds of pictures, and then I realized as a parent of four children that that's not the way children are. <laughs> you know, children are not that way. Children, at that age especially, you know how they feel. They don't hide it. They, might, they may not even know why they feel that way. They may not even be able to control it, but they feel their feels. When they're happy, they're happy. When they're sad, they're sad. When they're furious, they're furious. And the role of us as a parent is to take it, to take whatever it is, to make it a safe place for whatever emotion that they're feeling. 
And we use parental wording when we talk about God. We're the first two words of the Lord's Prayer. So, I looked at this past passage and I realized that this was Jesus saying, yeah, bring it. Because you know when that happened, these weren't happy people, these were oppressed people. This was a group of people who were anguished and oppressed where the wisest of their wise men had less power than the meanest of the Roman soldiers. That these people, these parents that were coming there, I, I can't imagine, I could imagine that what it would be like to know that the Savior is over there, the person who can lead you out there, the person who can heal with a touch, who can bring life back with a touch, is right over there. I want to get my kid there. Or maybe I don't even know that. Maybe I just see other people with their children running that way. And I know that in a repressed society, if people are running with their kids that way, that means something bad's happening there or something's good's going there and you, and you run and you find out. So it was crazy. Kids are emotional amplifiers too. So whatever the feeling of the people around them, these desperate people, that's magnified too. So these, no wonder the disciples were rebuking them because this was a mess. And Jesus said, no, stop it. Let them come. Bring them to me. And in fact, not only that, unless you come to me like that, raw, unfiltered, what you are and who you are, we can't hang. So yes, I can say I hate you to God because I need a God that is big enough to take that hate. If I don't have a God that can do that, then I can't use that God. And where is the church in this? Where are the disciples in this? And not just about emotions, but actuality. That picture of me, I was eight years old. I knew what I was. I knew that I was transgender. There was no doubt in my mind. I just didn't have the words. And this church belongs to a denomination that says, I can't hang because of that. And yes, I know that there is an LBGTQ inclusion statement here that goes as far as you can. But still. And I know... Not all Christians are like this. But for me, not all Christians has the same amount of weight as not all men or not all white people. It misses the point. Did you guys miss going to Baber last week? Were you excited about Baber? Were you happy about Baber? I wasn't going to go. I don't show up here when Baber comes here. I don't go there when Baber comes, goes there because I'm not welcome. Two years ago, I took my show around the country and I would go to churches and I would look for churches that said all are welcome here in, in front of them. And I would go there and I was betting about 250 for being all. And most of the places I would go in, when it came to passing the peace, the person to their left would turn to their left and the person to the right would turn to their right. And the person in front of me would all of a sudden make me invisible and go around me, which is weird because they were staring at me when I walked in. The first time I came here, when Baber was here as myself, the person to their left turned to their left, the person to their right turned to their right, and the person in front of me was invisible. thought I was invisible. One person saw me, though. I was going to the bathroom. I was walking into the ladies' room, or trying to, when an older black woman walked out and saw me and stopped in the doorway with her hands on her hips and glared at me. Luckily, I lived close enough that I could hold it till I got home. 
Have you ever talked to anybody at Baper about LBGTQ inclusion? Have you heard their views on that? Do you know what it's like to sit here and hear people say, are you excited about Baper? Do you know what it's like to want to be allies for people who don't want you there? I do. In a moment, we're going to have communion, something that I don't do here. I would love to. I don't. And we're going to do it a little bit differently because I and two other members, people who come to this church who are also in the queer community, will be offering it to you. One of us will hold the bread. One of us will hold the juice. One of us will hold the wine. And I'll ask how you feel about communing with us. But before we do that, I would love to have a minute of silence and reflection. I love this church. I love the people in here, and I know that I am loved. I want you to know that. And I want to know if I'm safe enough to be with you. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for a place where I can voice my fears and voice my anger and all of my emotions. And thank you for giving me a place where I can turn these things, these powerful feelings, because I know that this is where they belong. Because if I'm able to give you my hate, that means that I am able to love people who are doing their best they can, even if it is woefully short of where they need to be. Thank you for the community and thank you for the love. And thank you for sending your son down here to hang with us. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.